Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by David Sorkin to talk about the history of Jewish emancipation, the process of Jews gaining and sometimes losing civic and civil rights in modern times. David Sorkin is the Lucy G. Moses Professor of Modern Jewish History at Yale's Department of History. He recently published Jewish Emancipation, a history across five centuries. He's a leading scholar in modern Jewish history, and he focuses particularly on the social, intellectual, and political transformations from the 16th century to the present, which he looks at in this book through the lens of emancipation. He's also written about these same issues in some of his other major books, including The Transformation of German Jewry, 1780 to 1840, and Moses Mendelssohn and the Religious Enlightenment. This new book, Jewish Emancipation, synthesizes the legal and historical pathways of emancipation against a broad geographical and chronological backdrop, both in Western and Central Europe, which much of the traditional discussion of emancipation has emphasized, and he also includes the Ottoman Empire and the U.S., where many have passed over the history of emancipation on the basis of assumptions that emancipation is, first of all, a European story, and secondly, that Jews never needed emancipating in the U.S. So this book undermines a number of key assumptions about how we understand emancipation. The book also extends our timeline. Instead of focusing on the French Revolution and its aftermath as a one-time event, David traces the history of emancipation as a process from the 16th century to the present. He suggests that this is a story that isn't over yet, especially when we consider Israel and the question of rights and citizenship there. I'm really excited to share our conversation. David's book presents a starting point for a wide-ranging discussion about how we understand Jewish emancipation and why it matters. As David suggests, we talk about emancipation and we know that this is an important juncture in modern Jewish history. But it paradoxically has also been neglected. So when we look at this history more closely, we can think about why emancipation matters, not only for how we understand Jewish history, but as a story that illuminates and illustrates the development of modernity on a much larger scale. If you enjoy this episode, I hope you'll share it with a friend. You can find it online, along with a transcript of our conversation at jewishhistory.fm emancipation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. So hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation because I saw this book a while ago and I said, we have to talk about this. This is a really, really important topic. And I think that one of the reasons why it's so important is because it's an issue which we talk about a lot, about emancipation. We teach about it in our classes Everybody reads about it when they're studying for their PhD or when they want to understand modern Jewish history in general. 
but we don't always look at it in detail. We look at a couple different cases, the French Revolution, you know, et cetera, but it's often oversimplified. And so I'm hoping that today we can really dive into the details about emancipation and also why it matters. Uh, Jason, I, I agree entirely with what you just said. I think emancipation is always there in, in thinking about studying and teaching modern Jewish history. In some ways, it's ubiquitous. It's unavoidable. But I do think that the understanding of emancipation has usually been too circumscribed, too narrow. And I say that circumscribed and narrow both uh, chronologically and geographically, but also conceptually. And I think part of the problem has been is that there's a tremendous scholarship on emancipation in individual countries, regions, individual cities, but there hasn't been sort of broad synthetic thinking about emancipation. If you think about how central emancipation is in modern Jewish history, it's really shocking that there hasn't been an attempt at a synthetic account of emancipation since Jacob Katz's 1973 out of the ghetto. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's almost half a century that is the only synthetic account in any language that I know of. And Jacob Katz only dealt primarily with three countries. It's really about France, Austria, and Prussia. Uh, he mentions England and Holland a little bit. He doesn't deal with Eastern Europe, and then he doesn't deal with anywhere else in the world. Uh, and if you look at the, the structure of the book, it's more about the causes of emancipation and its consequences and not about the actual process. There's only one chapter on actual legislation. I think that Katz's book really does loom large when we think about yours in a lot of ways. But before we delve into kind of the historiographical aspects of all of this, I think that what you just said, uh, one thing that maybe we can pick up on is this question of the synthetic approach and also thinking about what is emancipation to begin with where you said that, that people kind of talk about it, they think about it, but we don't always look at it in detail. And I want to broaden our lens a little bit and think about what even is emancipation. Mm -hmm. As you write about in the book, this is a term that applies in all sorts of different contexts and not just in terms of the Jews. Jewish emancipation is just one in a whole series of cases that we can talk about emancipation as a phenomenon in modern times, in Europe, but also in other places too. So before we dive into the details of, of Jewish emancipation, what would you say is the fundamental meaning of emancipation uh, as a phenomenon of modernity at large? And what are the big picture issues that it allows us to engage with and think about? Well, I, I guess I would argue that emancipation in general uh, is really about equalization and a release from some kind of inferior status whether that's discrimination, disabilities, etc. So in the modern period, emancipation is applied to serfs. It's a term applied to slaves. It's applied to women. It's applied to workers. You know, I, I think it was Heinrich Heine, the poet and satirist, who wrote that, that the 19th century is the century of emancipation. I think one could broaden that and say, the modern world is the world of emancipation, where different groups, however defined, are always struggling to emancipate themselves. I mean, I think one of the things that I try and show in, in my book, and I think that's important and is often lost, 
is that the struggle for equalization or emancipation or rights in Europe actually begins with religion. It's really about first attaining some kind of notion of toleration and then toleration of different religions and then the equality of members of different religions. And that you can't understand what happened to Jews uh, in isolation from the larger issue of religious toleration and religious equality in general. And that one can see that, first of all, in the very term emancipation, which is applied to Jews after the emancipation of Catholics in England in 1829. But you can also see it in the legislation. Joseph II's Edict of Toleration, which is often seen as a 1782 as a landmark in the toleration of Jews, follows an edict for Protestants and the Orthodox in the Habsburg Empire. Or even in France, uh, citizenship for Jews follows toleration for Protestants and citizenship for Protestants. So these, these things are always linked. So when we think about the development of Jewish emancipation in various countries, various places, as it relates to the toleration, emancipation of other religious groups, uh, various classes, emancipation of serfs, emancipation of slaves. You know, literally in America, we have the Emancipation Proclamation. And you're thinking about this process of equalization. Now, of course, this was very much in theory and not in practice. So we should always keep that in mind. But I'll go back to what I had asked about before just a second ago. In what ways do you think that thinking about this process as it develops for the Jews and also for other groups helps us to think about really important questions about the nature of the development of, of modernity or of, of, of Western societies or just in general in modern history? Well, I think it, it is possible to think about modernity or the modern world as a series of overlapping and related processes or efforts at emancipation of different groups defined differently, trying to, to find release from forms of discrimination and inequality and to gain equality. After all, with as I've just pointed out, with the emancipation of Jews is related to the emancipation of other religious groups, particularly in Europe, right, of Catholics and Protestant countries, dissenting Protestants and Protestant countries. But at the same time, it also converges or is happening concomitantly with the emancipation of serfs. In the late 19th century, it's happening with the emergence of the proletariat and the attempt of workers to gain equality and recognition. It's at the same time in the 19th and early 20th centuries as women trying to gain equality, right? The emancipation of women and the suffrage movement, etc. Um, and in our own time, it converges with the emancipation of the movement for gay and lesbian people, right? And so, or transgender. So all of these things are always going on. And I think one of the things that one can say is that even though in trying to understand the issue of Jewish emancipation or the emancipation of any of these other groups, um, that legislation is always an important landmark, is that legislation is only part of a much larger process. And that, for example, the Emancipation Proclamation for Slaves in the United States 
is a pivotal moment, but it's only one moment in an ongoing process. And the Jewish emancipation needs to be seen the same way. It is not, as previous historians have treated it, it is not a linear process. Uh, it is not narrowly circumscribed chronologically. It does not start at point A and end at point B. It doesn't start with the French Revolution in 1790 and 91 and end with the Russian Revolution in, in 1917. It begins much earlier and it continues to the present day. I think that you're hinting at here the major interventions of your book and of your thinking about emancipation as a whole. You're talking about the connection between Jewish emancipation and the emancipation of Catholics and Protestants to begin with. And this suggests the way in which the history of emancipation begins in, say, the 16th century, you know, with the conclusion of the wars of religion in Europe. And as you have societies that include many different religious groups are trying to figure out how to deal with this religiously diverse society, you know, the Jews are also a part of this as well. And I think that you're also talking here about the way in which the history of emancipation also extends up to the present in a lot of ways. And I think that, that some of the things that, that are coming through here have to do with the ways in which the development of, of the debates about emancipation which I think might even be a better way than just talking about emancipation as a thing. It's not just a thing, but it's a process. It's, it's a discussion, one that is not really fully complete, but that it's tied to these broader developments of the modern state, the transformation of subjects into citizens, the creation of unified codes of law, you know, et cetera. And so as I think about some of these things, you know, we can look at this process of the development of the modern world from a lot of different perspectives. So looking at Jewish emancipation in particular, how does it help us to understand modernity and these various processes that you've touched upon and thought about in different ways? Well, I think there are a number of different ways of thinking about that. I think Jewish emancipation is an important case study, as it were, for emancipation in the modern world. And especially since it's such a long-term and geographically broad process. It's a process that extends across Europe, uh, as you've already mentioned, from the 16th century to the present day. It extends across the Ottoman Empire and now uh, North Africa and the Middle East. It's a process that extends into the New World through the Dutch and British colonies uh, and into the United States. And it's a process that also encompasses the state of Israel. So as an instance or a case of emancipation, I wouldn't say it's universal, but it's extremely broad chronologically and geographically. And for that reason, has tremendous significance for historians who are thinking about the nature of emancipation and of groups gaining equality in the modern world. I also think it's significant in the, in the sense that it can't be understood in isolation from the larger issues of emancipation in general, as you've pointed out the creation of notions of citizenship, the creation of nations and nation states and nationality states and nationalities empires. Uh, I think it's often been the case that in the writing of the history of Jewish emancipation, there's been a very strong assumption that there is this thing, citizenship or equality out there and the Jews are being excluded from it rather than seeing that Nations are in formation, 
There's this fluid notion of citizenship, which is slowly emerging, and it's a painful process within various countries, and that Jews are part of that larger process as it unfolds. It's not as if they're simply being excluded and they're knocking at the door and trying to gain entrance. There isn't yet a door. The terms are not yet set. The terms are being defined. The terms are fluid. And Jewish emancipation is an important part of that larger process. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what's going on here has to do with the fact that the way in which Jewish scholars and also just Jews in general have encountered the idea of emancipation has not been from some kind of detached academic perspective, even for those who have been academics. But as you said, emancipation is a goal. Uh, And it has been a goal, historically speaking, for a long time. And so when we talk about this terminology, it's, it's loaded in a way. I think that one of the challenges that you have in this book, even if you talk about people like Saul Baron, you know, writing about ghetto and emancipation in 1928, he's still using terminology that has this baggage that it's not just something that we talk about, but it's something that is tremendously important for people's everyday lives. So when we talk about emancipation, it's one of these key words in modern Jewish history alongside ghetto, alongside assimilation, etc., that have not only a historical importance, but also a deeply political one. And part of the question here is, as you approach this question, we've been talking a lot about what this contributes to our understanding of modern history at large, but also as we think about Jewish history, you know, it's a very tough balancing act in a way to deal with something that is both a historical process and also even today a political football. Yes, I think that's right on the mark. I think emancipation is one of those terms or one of those concepts in Jewish history uh, which has been ideologically overdetermined. It carries tremendous freight and baggage. It's been at the center uh, of all the contending ideologies and political movements in the modern Jewish world, right? So there is a school of historians and those political movements that celebrate emancipation. There are those historians and those scholarly movements and those political movements uh, that denigrate emancipation and attack emancipation. And so I think what I've tried to do in this book is to extricate emancipation from those ideologically uh, fraught debates and to try and write a history of emancipation free from those ideological perspectives, meaning to say, I haven't written a triumphalist history from the point of view of those who celebrate emancipation, and I haven't written emancipation as a narrative of tragedy of the way that those who attack emancipation see it. I've tried to, to show both the triumph and the tragedy and show that those are in fact interconnected and integral aspects of the history of emancipation. And doing that requires sort of casting one's nets broadly and looking at emancipation, well, across Europe and in North Africa and the Middle East and Israel and the United States and thinking about it in new ways and, and sort of breaking the ideological um, molds. Yeah, I mean, I think these ideological molds are critical to understand why emancipation matters because it's not just a question of whether, when, and how Jews gained 
civil and civic rights in different places, but how the success or failures of those developments have played out in the decades and centuries since then. Yes. I mean, I, one of the arguments that I try and make just mention is that it's not a linear process. There's progress and reversal. There's ebb and flow. Emancipation is gained multiple times in individual states and places and lost multiple times. I can give you examples of that, but I don't think we need to go into the details. But the point is, is that emancipation is never a simple process. It's ongoing and it goes in multiple, multiple directions. I mean, I think that one of the things that you do, which is very interesting in the book, uh, is that you divide the globe, so to speak, into different regions. Um, and here by globe, I mean mostly Europe, though you do include other non-European places. And so you articulate sort of three different areas, uh, broadly speaking, Western Europe, Central Europe, and Eastern Europe, as three realms that all kind of follow different paths. And then you also add what you call a fourth region, which would be the Ottoman Empire. So as you're trying to understand how emancipation took different paths, you know, sometimes forward, sometimes backwards, sometimes to the side, so to speak, in different places, what would you say then are like the main differences between these different regions? And why do you think that dividing or categorizing the, the histories of emancipation in these ways helps us to understand the phenomenon as a whole? Well, I, I think here, just in the same way that emancipation has been a central and ideologically freighted category for understanding modern Jewish history, uh, the way that Europe has been understood, Europe has also been subjected to a highly ideological category, uh, and that's the East-West binary, this notion that Jews in Eastern Europe were unemancipated, remained traditional, were sort of the, the seedbed or the ideological hothouse for the creation of modern Jewish politics and particularly nationalist Jewish politics, whereas Jews in the West were emancipated, acculturated, or perhaps even worse, assimilated, lost their Judaism, and suffered all of the negative consequences of gaining citizenship and equality. That East-West binary emerges in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It's central to the emergence of all of the political and ideological movements of the time. Uh, but it's actually been taken over into the historical scholarship and unfortunately has led to a rather simplistic and leveling notion of what emancipation was. So what I've tried to do in looking at what I call the three regions of emancipation is to restore complexity that actually allows us to see how the process unfolded differently in different parts of Europe. So I make a basic distinction between civil rights, which would include the right of residence, occupation, property ownership, freedom of belief, and political rights, which would mean the franchise, holding political office, uh, being able to take oaths for office, etc. And if you divide emancipation between civil and political rights, you can then differentiate the way the process unfolds or develops in those three different regions, meaning to say in Western Europe, which I characterize as primarily England, Holland, and the south of France, Jews begin to gain civil rights or the privileges that eventually turn into civil rights through the process of settlement 
beginning in the 16th century. And so when there's an actual question of citizenship, it's really just then a struggle for political rights. That's really the case in England. The emancipation process in England, as it unfolds in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, is about holding office and, and being able to exercise the franchise. The same thing is true in the Batavian Republic in the 1790s. The debate is about whether Jews should have political rights. And it's also the case for the Jews of Bordeaux during the French Revolution. They already have civil rights. They already have right of residence, occupation, and own property. The situation is very different in Central Europe, where Jews have not gained civil rights or privileges that are the equivalent of civil rights through the terms of settlement. They have to struggle for both civil rights and political rights. So the emancipation process is much broader. It's much, it's much more complex. And uh, it takes much longer for Jews to gain formal political rights. And then there are always ongoing infringements on those rights. And in Eastern Europe, the situation is similar to Central Europe in that the privileges that Jews had gained in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth are largely lost as a result of the partitions of Poland in the 1770s and then in the 1790s. The privileges Jews had gained were part of the structure of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and all of the partitioning powers basically try and undermine and dismantle those structures. Uh, so the Jews' relationship to the Polish gentry, to the Schlachta, be becomes a liability, whereas previously it had been an asset. Particularly in Eastern Europe, if we look at the Tsarist government, the Tsarist government tries to follow the policies of Central European states. It looks to the Habsburgs, it looks to states like Baden and Bavaria for its policies. But of course, the structure of Tsarist government, Tsarist Russia is very different than the Central European states. You have an autocracy where no one has rights, there are only privileges, those privileges are always revocable. Uh, so the process develops uh, rather differently, even though Tsarist Russia is looking to Central Europe for its policies. So that's one thing I try and do is to differentiate those three different regions of emancipation in Europe. I also think by doing so, it helps us to understand the British colonies and then the United States. I uh, argue that in the, the United States follows the pattern of Western Europe where Jews only have to struggle, at least initially, for political rights, that they gain civil rights as part of the colonial experience and the terms of settlement. But in the 19th century, at the state level, they have to mobilize to gain political rights. So, so that broadens the notion of emancipation, but that's still within the framework of what one could call the Ashkenazification of Jewish history. Um, and that is still... Um, a problem that Jewish historians are trying to overcome to incorporate uh, the Mizrahi and Sephardi world into modern Jewish history. And for that reason, I also look at the Ottoman Empire and show that the Ottoman Empire follows its own version uh, or develops its own version of emancipation. It's heavily influenced by the West, even the 1856 Emancipation Decree, the Kati Humayun, 
explicitly says we are doing this uh, under the influence and to, and basically to please the Western powers, right? But it unfolds differently because the Ottoman Empire, rather than dissolving the religious communities and trying to integrate them into um, a larger civil society, reinforces the religious communities, giving the powers of personal status law to the religious courts. And so this leads to a, a very different sort of, um, of emancipation. You've gestured here at a couple of, I think, the key interventions that you're making in the book, some of the, the, the key contributions, in addition to kind of breaking down the East-West binary, which you know, I'll admit the East-West binary is very useful for teaching. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I have to admit that I'm, I use it myself. Yeah. So, no, but, but I won't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I think as we think about how we explain emancipation and how we talk about it, whether we're doing it amongst ourselves uh, in the classroom or in the public sphere, it raises important questions about the assumptions that we've had about it that underlie these kinds of conversations and these approaches. Um, and I think that two of the other ones, which you've just barely scratched the surface of, here have to do with the inclusion of the Ottoman Empire and also the inclusion of the U.S. and also the state of Israel as part of this story as well. And I think that the part of the reason why this is so interesting is that, first of all, I think that most people tend to assume that emancipation is a purely European story. And then the other assumption that a lot of people have is that the history of emancipation is over, right? This is something that happened in the past. It's not an ongoing debate. And so I think that by including the Ottoman Empire and including the U.S. and the state of Israel, you're including places that people kind of assume. You don't need a history of emancipation in the U.S., which is, you know, in theory, definitely not in practice, founded on the basis of equality. And in Israel, a state founded by Jews, essentially, why do you need emancipation for Jews in the state of Israel? And so I think that part of what you're doing here is to highlight a number of areas where we don't usually think about emancipation even having a history. Let me include another component in that question, uh, which is to say that in trying to make the argument that emancipation is an ongoing process, I include um, the United States, Israel, but also post-Holocaust Europe, because I think it's very important to, to see that the, the post-war developments for Jews in Europe also belong to the process of emancipation, regaining citizenship, the restoration of property, the negotiation of reparations in Europe after the Holocaust are all part of the ongoing process of emancipation. That all belongs to regaining a lost equality. So it's part of the ebb and flow of emancipation. It's not the first time emancipation was reversed or equality was lost. Uh, this is just one more installment in an ongoing history. Similarly, for the United States, I think there is this very strong assumption that the American Jewish experience and American Jewish history are exceptional because Jews did not have to be emancipated uh, as white or white males, they had equality under the federal constitution from the start. Well, when you look closely, uh, that simply isn't the case. Jews did have to struggle for political rights at the state level in the 19th century. This was particularly the case in the state of Maryland in the 1820s. And you can see similar struggles for rights 
uh, in the British colonies in Jamaica and also in Canada at the same time. And then again, I would argue that Jews have to struggle a second time and that there's a second emancipation in the 20th century, uh, that the civil rights movement from 1946 to 1968 uh, is not a story of Jews altruistically supporting the emancipation or civil rights of African Americans. It's actually a story of Jews and Catholics and African Americans all struggling to gain civil rights. Jews have been discriminated against along with Catholics and African Americans. Uh, since early in the 20th century, there was discrimination or infringement on civil rights in employment, in housing, in educational and professional institutions. Uh, and it's only with the civil rights legislation of the 1950s and 60s that all of that is prohibited and outlawed and that Jews actually gain full equality. So once again, it's a question of a kind of ebb and flow where Jews in the 19th century had gained political rights and had civil rights, and then they lose those civil rights in the 20th century and have to fight to regain them in the post-World War II world. Finally, I would say that, yes, the state of Israel is usually not seen as part of the history of emancipation because, after all, most people think emancipation is a story of the diaspora. It's a story of Jews being a minority in a larger society and struggling for equality. But if you look carefully at the history of Israel, Israel is all about how you integrate heterogeneous groups and create a democratic society. And I think it's very clear that, that Israel incorporated heterogeneous groups by creating a kind of hierarchy of citizenships. Uh, that Mizrahi Jews who came from North Africa and the Middle East in large numbers in the late 1940s and through the 50s and 60s were discriminated against. While they had de jure equality, de facto did not have equality. Israeli Arabs, while de jure citizens, were also discriminated against. There was confiscation of land within Israel's borders until 67. Arab villagers were prohibited from returning to their former villages after the 1948 war, the War of Independence. If you look at the distribution of funding uh, for infrastructure, for schools, Israeli Arabs have always had a second-class status where they've gotten inferior funding. If you look at the allocation of building permits to deal with an expanding population, uh, Israeli Arabs within the Green Line uh, have never gotten the kinds, the allocation of building permits that they needed. So you have all kinds of illegal housing, but it's illegal out of frustration with a discriminatory system. Similarly, I would argue that in Israel, uh, the status of non-Orthodox Judaism is an important form of inequality. Um, and also the status, the status of women. So I, I, I think in that sense that Israel as a democratic state and society uh, also is undergoing and needs to continue to undergo a process of emancipation. It's a struggle for equality within that country. I think that part of 
what you just laid out here is a really glaring set of omissions in terms of how people have kind of traditionally understood emancipation, which is to say that usually when people talk about emancipation, they are talking about the emancipation of Ashkenazi Jewish men. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the, the context of Jewish history. So if we're talking about the emancipation of Jews in, uh, you know, let's say in Prussia in the course of the 19th century, to what extent can we talk about the emancipation of Jewish women in Prussia when women didn't have full equality as well, just in general. So I think that what you're pointing out here also, which is just really important for us to keep in mind, is say, for instance, we're talking about Israel, the, the, the kind of unspoken focus on Ashkenazi Jewish men as the history of Jewish emancipation leaves out all the non-Ashkenazi Jews, for instance, in Israel, leaves out the question of women's equality, you know, certainly leaves out Palestinians. That's right. So, I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do is to write a more inclusive history of emancipation, chronologically more inclusive, geographically, but demographically in terms of Jewish populations. I mean, I think the book is regrettably still heavily focused on Jewish men, but that's in part a result of the legislation where citizenship laws have have traditionally focused on men. So I've I've had to follow what I find in the legislation and in parliamentary debates, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I have tried to include women wherever the documentation allows, but I do think the history of Jewish women and citizenship is is yet to be written. So one thing that, that you've talked about a little bit, and you mentioned it in the book and, and, and here also, is that the history of emancipation has been overlooked in some fashion. And this seems like kind of a curious claim, especially because we kind of all talk about it and we teach about it in our classes. You know, we read about it when we're studying modern Jewish history. So do you maybe want to comment a little bit about what you mean when you say that the history of emancipation has been neglected uh, and also kind of what brought you towards it? Where do you see this coming from? And also, how has your approach to emancipation as a topic changed over the course of the years? That's a big question, so let me try and take it in part. Uh, First of all, I think part of the problem with the way emancipation is usually talked about is that it's been it's been reduced, it's been simplified. In the same way that the East-West binary simplifies our view of Europe, emancipation is often talked about in terms of two different models, for example, the unconditional emancipation of the French Revolution, the conditional emancipation of the German states, for example. Um, there, there are other such models as well. I mean, those are reductionist. They're useful, as all such schema are, but they're reductionist. That's chronologically too limited. It's geographically too limited. I think what motivated me to write this book was realizing that despite the accumulation of a tremendous amount of scholarship on emancipation in different countries, different regions, different cities, there really has been no attempt at a synthetic account of emancipation. No one has kind of stepped back and said, well, if we take all of this scholarship and if we think about modern Jewish history writ large— What's the place of emancipation? 
is it a limited process from the Enlightenment and the French Revolution to the Russian Revolution and the minority rights treaties? You know, there's there's a way in which most scholars of modern European Jewish history see the modern period ending in 1933 or 1939. What happens if we think about the Holocaust in relationship to emancipation? What happens if we think about the post-Holocaust period in relationship to emancipation? And then, as, I've, as we've already discussed, the United States and Israel, the Ottoman Empire, etc. So what happened to me is that at a certain point, I realized that the more focused studies that I had engaged in earlier in which I was concerned primarily with the cultural consequences of emancipation or with theories of emancipation and ideas of emancipation, uh, weren't really getting at this core issue of emancipation, that the political history of emancipation simply hadn't been written and that this was just this enormous gap in the scholarship on modern Jewish history and in our understanding of modern Jewish history. And so that propelled me to write a history of emancipation and to try and cast my nets broadly. For me, pushing emancipation back into the 16th century was a kind of revelation. Pushing it forward into the 20th century, including the Holocaust, the post-Holocaust period, America and Israel, those were also kinds of historical revelations for me. Uh, and, you know, it took me a lot of time and effort and thought in order to be able to uh, carry out. So you mentioned before this attempt to write a synthetic history, to, to synthesize all of these different cases, all these different histories all together in order to get a better understanding of the development of modern Jewish history writ large. What do we get from that? When we step back from, say, the case of the German Jews, right, or the case of the French Jews, the case of the Polish Jews or, or whatever, and we put them all together, what's the big takeaway here in terms of how we can understand Jewish history when we take this 30,000-foot perspective? Yeah, I think what, what this bird's-eye view, as it were, gives us is a more unified understanding of modern Jewish history. You know, one of the things in writing this book is I realized I was covering so much territory and so many examples that I had to limit the book to narrow political history. But I think in doing that, I also open up the possibility of people thinking about uh, what I would call the consequences of emancipation, meaning to say, if you think about emancipation as this unifying process and development in modern Jewish history, then how does that change the way we understand the consequences of emancipation? Meaning to say, religious change in the modern period, social change, social mobility, Jewish economic history, Jewish demographic history. If we see all of those different aspects of Jewish history in relationship to this larger emancipation process, we come away with new perspectives. I also think that in seeing emancipation as the central process of the last four and a half centuries or so, uh, that it also gives us a new perspective on contemporary events. Uh, for example, I think 
the unfortunate developments in Europe and the United States in the last couple of years, the increased violence against Jews of anti-Semitic propaganda should be seen not in isolation as just manifestations of anti-Semitism. These are actually attacks on Jewish emancipation and on rights in general that the attacks on Jews are not isolated parochial issues to be categorized as anti-Semitism, but actually attacks on the kind of society that makes emancipation and rights possible, not just for Jews, but for all other groups. Part of what you're getting at here has to do with the way which people don't really have a detailed and nuanced understanding of the development of emancipation or even of its nature, so to speak. You know, people kind of know about emancipation, um, but we don't always look at it in detail. We, we look at it in terms of like, you know, the greatest hits, so to speak. As you're thinking about the set of issues, to what extent do you think that emancipation is misunderstood by scholars and historians in particular, but also by the general public? And what do you think then do we gain from having a deep, nuanced understanding of emancipation and how does it help us in these realms as we think about scholarly approaches as well as broader issues among the general public? Yeah, well, I, I think, first of all, let's just take the American case. I think it's both a scholarly article of faith or credo and also a popular one that American Jewish history, the American Jewish experience is exceptional Jews never had to be emancipated. That's something that happened in Europe. That was a struggle over there. Jews here always had rights. And the only problems American Jews have ever had is with this issue of anti-Semitism, right? And, but where anti-Semitism comes from and why it's important, that starts to get very hazy. But I think if you see American Jewish history, not as an exceptional history, but part of the larger history of emancipation, then what's usually subsumed to the category of anti-Semitism can be subsumed to the category of emancipation and the struggle for equality and rights. And if you look at what's been happening in this country in the past couple of years, and you see it under the rubric of emancipation, then all of a sudden it's part of these developments, you know, murders, attacks, defamation, are part of a larger effort at depriving Jews and other groups of their rights. I think that part of what's happening here, especially when we think about, you know, as you referenced the, the rise in anti-Semitic violence, has to do with the discourse uh, about it and about emancipation and about the status of Jews within Jewish circles. And I think that the, one of the challenges that exists is the tendency to try to look at what is taking place to Jews, you know, looking at violence against Jews or discrimination against Jews with certain kind of blinders on mm -hmm. and to assume that this is a phenomenon that is perhaps distinct from what's taking place around it. And I think that part of what you're getting at here, and we can think about this in terms of the history of emancipation uh, and also the history of discrimination, uh, is this question of how do we expand our view in order to see these developments of what is 
happening in terms of Jewish history or even in terms of contemporary developments as not just a Jewish story, but part of a much bigger process. That's right. I agree with that entirely. And I think that also applies to Israel. The issues in Israeli society, status of Palestinian Arabs, Mizrahi Jews, women, non-Orthodox Judaism, not to mention the West Bank, the occupied territories, takes on a very different cast if we think about that in terms of the history of Jewish emancipation. After all, the founding fathers of Zionism wanted to create a society in which the emancipation that they thought had failed in Europe for Jews and others would be realized in a Jewish state. Well, if you measure contemporary Israel against the vision of Theodore Herzl, for example, then you can see the current process in terms of the history of emancipation, because that's how he understood it, right? It's not importing some foreign category. Herzl himself thought in terms of emancipation. He was a super-emancipationist. He wanted the new Jewish state to realize the emancipation that had failed in Europe. So I think that puts a different light on current problems in the state of Israel. Yeah. So I think that the issue that we've been kind of dancing around or, or moving around a little bit just in the past couple of minutes, but it's something that I've been thinking about, you know, since reading your book, is that it seems to me that in a, in a certain way that in today's world, we have a resurgence of ethno-nationalism, uh, white supremacy, anti-Semitism, et cetera, um, that this history of emancipation is really important for us to wrap our heads around and to think about. So as you think about these issues, which you touched upon very briefly in the past couple of minutes, why do you think that emancipation matters today? Well, I think emancipation matters today because in this country, ethno-nationalists, white supremacists, anti-Semites, if you want to call them that, those are people who historically have been the opponents of Jewish emancipation, right? White supremacists are also, by and large, neo-Nazis. The Nazis were opposed to Jewish emancipation. Where does the Holocaust begin? The Holocaust begins in Nazi Germany with the de-emancipation of the Jews. That was the first goal of the Nazis, when they came to power in terms of Jewish policy, was to deprive the Jews of citizenship, which they set about doing. First, they deprived Jews of political rights, then they deprived them of civil rights. Ultimately, they deprived them of their labor, their bodies, their possessions, and their lives. So the white supremacists today and the ethno-nationalists are the heirs of the opponents of Jewish emancipation. So I think what, what the book opens up is a perspective in which we can see today's developments historically. They are historically informed and historically intelligible, historically legible. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and also follow us on social media where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and also in our Facebook group. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.